At first, the boy thought the preaching and baptizing at the river was a joke. Everything was a joke at his house. But when the preacher asked him if he wanted to be washed in the deep river of life that was made to carry sin, to lay his trouble in the river of pain and watch it move away toward the kingdom of Christ, Bevel said, yes. He imagined he would find this kingdom under the water and not have to return to his parents and eat stale bread while they slept off yet another hangover. The preacher said the words of baptism, plunged him in the water and held him there. And he came up spitting and spewing. You count now. You didn't even count before, the preacher said. The next morning, Bevel, alone, ate more stale bread and poured the ashes from his parents' cigarettes on the carpet and played like it was a sand pile. In despair, he got an idea. He would return to the river and find the kingdom of Christ. He tried to... Excuse me. He tried to dunk himself again down in the river, but sprung up gasping the way he did when the preacher immersed him. Something again was pushing him back. He began to hit and splash and kick the filthy river. He thought he'd never find the kingdom of Christ. That it was all just another joke. He plunged in frustration again. And this time, the waiting current caught him, like a long, gentle hand that pulled him swiftly forward. For an instant, he was overcome with surprise. Then, since he was moving quickly and knew that he was getting somewhere, all his fury and fear left him. Now, I thought that an excerpt from Flannery O'Connor's short story, The River, was a fitting place for us to begin our discussion this morning as we talk about the river of pain and we look at baptism this morning. And if you think about young Bevel taken to the river by his babysitter, not by his parents, as the author mentions, as the author tells us, they had challenges of their own. But Bevel taken to the, the river by his babysitter, who was herself a believer, a child of God. And then he thinks to himself, well, you know, this idea of this kingdom, wherever it might be, now this is more attractive than what I have at home. And so Bevel is looking for something to take him away from the pain of his growing up, from the pain of his household. And of course, to everything in his house, as we're told, that it's all just a joke. And so he looks at what the preacher's doing and plunging these people in the river, and he's thinking, what kind of joke is this? But then it starts to appeal to him. And then the next day, where is he? Back in that house with those parents who were neglecting him. Playing with, of all things, the ashes from their ashtray. Thinking to himself, well, that baptism didn't do a thing. 
it's yet another one of life's jokes. And then drawing on that inspiration to go back there. Well, let me do it again. Maybe it'll take the next time that I do it. And then he finally lets his fears go when he starts moving. When he's thinking, well now at least I'm not here, I'm going somewhere. And that's exactly what baptism is. As we've talked about in recent weeks and months, I've tried to remind us that baptism isn't the end-all, be-all. It's not that we're getting our ticket punched and now here we are, nothing left to do. I'm a child of God, after all. No, it marks the beginning of a journey. It marks the beginning of now I'm going somewhere. Does it change everything? Well, it changes everything in an eternal sense. Does it make all the pain of this world go away? Well, of course not. And why is that? Because we wake up the next morning and we still find ourselves in a broken and fallen world, don't we, church? A world that needs saving. A world that needs the love of Jesus. And so, here we are, beginning a journey. A journey that we find doesn't mean that everything is just rainbows and roses and it's all just perfect right away. But a journey in which we have Jesus walking with us that we have the Holy Spirit in us. Some don't find the Holy Spirit in them right away. And that's part of that journey. Because sometimes we have faith and we're obedient in baptism, but then it takes a while for us to truly and fully surrender to God. Because just as we talked about last week, that message titled The Constant War, what are we at battle with? We're in battle with the flesh every day. And so because we're in battle with the flesh every day, there are aspects of our life that we want to hang on to ourselves, don't we, church? We don't want to give everything up to God right away. That's kind of our nature. We want to resist God in some ways. We want to hold back. We want to keep some things for ourselves. But then we get to that point when we are truly ready to surrender. And it's at that point that we can often finally see the Spirit of God at work inside of us. So, as we think about baptism this morning, as we think about what we believe about baptism, without fail, every Sunday morning when we gather, we conclude our time together. I offer an invitation. I invite the folks in this room to come forward. To come forward if you feel like you need prayers for something in your life. 
but then also to come forward if you are ready to be an adopted child of God. And baptism is mentioned as part of that process. And so in the churches of Christ, we, have, we hold to a strong doctrine of baptism as it relates to salvation. And so we look this morning at some different places in Scripture. One is we find in Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And there we have it very plainly that baptism signals new life. That it marks the beginning of a spiritual journey, what we hope would be a long and fruitful spiritual journey. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we begin with verse 13, kind of a lengthy, a lengthy section here, but there's a lot that we can take to heart and, and that, that we can uh, benefit from reading uh, this, this scripture here. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter telling us, live good enough lives so that, you know, you can't always stop. You can't always determine what people are going to say about you. But live good enough lives so that when they say bad things, people are going to know that it's just simply not true and that they ultimately may be ashamed of what they're saying about you. Verse 17, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. But what does Brother Peter tell us here, church, about baptism? 
And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And he specifies, it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. I've said for years, there's nothing special about the water itself. It comes from the city of Hohenwald. And so we're grateful that uh, we can turn on a spigot in that curtain behind me and that water comes out, that we can fill it. We're grateful when, that we've got a heater in there. We're grateful with when it works because sometimes uh, it's gone out on us and sometimes uh, you know that baptistry feels like being baptized in a creek. It feels like the good old days. Uh, but uh, I've never had anybody complain, I'll say that. Uh, I've warned them and said, you know, it's, it's going to be chilly this morning. And I've never had one person come up and say, how dare you plunge me into that cold water? No, because they come out of that water and they are a new creation. And they feel so good. And yes, in the days that follow, they might have a bevel-like experience to where they realize, wow, I'm, I'm walking in newness of life, but there are still challenges. Because yes, it is still a fallen and broken world that we find ourselves in. And so it is up to us to let the Spirit do its work within us. It's up to us to let that light within us get brighter and brighter and brighter. And that we can be people who are willing to let that light shine in the darkness of the fallen world around us. And so we see it uh, from what we've read this morning, from what Paul writes in Romans 6, and then what uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so we look at this thing that we call a doctrine of baptism. In other words, how do we get here? How do we believe what we believe about baptism? That it truly is part of the salvation process. And one of the greatest examples in New Testament Scripture comes from the book of Acts. And when people want to talk to me about baptism, one of the things I point them to is the book of Acts. And I say, read the book of Acts. Read those chapters. Because what Luke is recording in the book of Acts is what's going on in the early years, the early decades of the new church. A church that finds itself operating in a new covenant. And what is, what's in the book of Acts is what's recorded about these apostles. These men that walked very closely with Jesus for about three years. And so at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, it records Jesus saying to these very apostles... You know, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says some beautiful words. And I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. And I love how Matthew closes out his gospel. What beautiful words of our Lord and Savior that he records there. 
because I take comfort in knowing that Jesus is with me. And I hope you do too, church. In the book of Acts, we see in chapter 2 that Peter is preaching at a Jewish festival called Pentecost. And so, uh, Jesus has resurrected. He has ascended at this point to the right hand of the Heavenly Father. And Peter, Peter, Peter is preaching. And so, uh, he is preaching to a Jewish audience because that, that, that is who shows up to a Jewish festival. I'm going to get through it, church, I promise. It's touch and go right here, but we're going to pull it through. And so he's preaching to this Jewish audience, and we're told in Acts 2 that about 3,000 of them respond to his message. Because it says that he's teaching them that this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Messiah. And we're told in Acts 2 that they are cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? And he says, repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then in uh, Acts chapter 8, there are people in Samaria... And we're told in verse 12 that they believe and then are baptized. A little further in Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to a, an official from Ethiopia. And so there is an evangelist named Philip who finds this official in uh, the chariot reading from the book of Isaiah. And so Philip offers to explain what's being said there. And it's part of Isaiah that is telling about the coming Messiah, the Christ. And so we find there in the latter part of Acts chapter 8 that Philip then baptizes this Ethiopian official. We find in Acts chapter 9 the conversion of Saul. We just read from one of his letters in Romans because he's later known as Paul. But then he himself has a conversion experience. And in chapter 9, verse 18, we read that he was baptized. Acts chapter 10, <clears throat> Peter is uh, with a, person, a man named Cornelius. And that's an interesting situation. Because what Peter sees, and if you're familiar, if you ever studied the book of Acts, you know that Peter is, uh, is at one point in a trance. And there is this sheet that comes down, and uh, he sees animals on this. And he hears this voice that says, kill and eat. And how does Peter respond? He says, no, I can't eat what's unclean. And what does that voice say? Nothing that God is, has made should be considered unclean. And so as I mentioned a moment ago, it's a new covenant. That's something that Peter was struggling with. Because Peter was still holding to the old covenant. And the old Jewish dietary restrictions, for example. Don't eat this, don't eat that. And so now Peter's being told, no. No. 
uh, one a new covenant that doesn't apply anymore. You can eat that stuff. Don't consider it unclean any longer. And so his mind is being prepared for what he's about to witness. Because when he sees Cornelius and members of his household, he sees that the Holy Spirit is already on them. <clears throat> now, you can say, well, now how is the Holy Spirit already on them if Peter was preaching before that you received the Holy Spirit at baptism? Was Peter confused? Well, God needs to show Peter once and for all that baptism is not just for the Jews, that Christ died for the Gentiles as well. And so he blesses these folks with the Holy Spirit prior to their baptism. Because then how does Peter respond in Acts 10? He says, well now I see that salvation is for the Gentiles as well. Why would I withhold baptism from these people? If baptism doesn't really matter, why does Peter use that language? Why would I withhold baptism from these people? And so then he goes on to baptize Cornelius and members of his household. Later in Acts chapter 16, we're introduced to a woman named Lydia. And we find in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, that she was baptized. Later in that same chapter, there is a jailer who believes. And he and members of his household are baptized in Acts 16, verse 33. And then finally we get to Acts chapter 18, verse 8. And we find that there's some folks in Corinth who are baptized. Every salvation experience in the book of Acts involves baptism. These men who were instructed before Jesus departed from them go into all the world and baptize. Now, do we just dunk people in water? Of course not. There has to be belief. There has to be a desire for baptism. There has to be an expression that I am ready to begin this journey. A baptism without faith is just somebody getting wet. Now, this brings us to that question that people ask sometimes. They say, Greg, is baptism essential to be a child of God? And that's where I say, or specifically they sometimes ask about their loved one who might have confessed Christ as Lord but was never able to be baptized. And that's where I always give the same response. That's not up to me. I'm not God. I will tell you, there are situations in which someone confesses Christ as Lord soon before their death and they don't experience an immersion in baptism. I hope God extends them the same grace that He extends any, to anyone else. But I would say this. People that want to fight over baptism simply haven't read the Word of God. People that want to resist that 
they're not willing to be obedient. Christ set an example for us. Every one of the Gospels shows us that Jesus Christ was baptized. And we read that soon after in John's Gospel that people were being baptized. Now it says that it wasn't Jesus himself that was doing the baptizing, but it was his apostles. And so I would say, why would you not be baptized if you have the opportunity? Why would you not participate in this act of obedience? Why would you not participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? As my friend Patrick Mead says, come on in, y'all. The water's great. Why would you not do that? I've stood out here in this parking lot, had a lady that popped out of a minivan one day as I was out there walking across the parking lot. She said, she said, baptism is not necessary to be a Christian. And I said, who told you that? Well, it's just not. Okay. I'm waiting for an argument. I'm waiting for a case, you know. Present me an argument. Present me scripture. But she didn't do that. What I saw was someone who was very stubborn. What I saw was someone who was very resistant. What I saw was someone who was not willing to yield. And church family, we can't be adopted as sons and daughters of God if we're not willing to yield. If we are not willing to give up our lives... Every situation in which the apostles brought someone to salvation involved baptism. Who did they walk with for three years of their lives? Jesus Christ Himself. Who gave them the instruction to go into all the world and baptize? He didn't say go into all the world and encourage them to ask Jesus into their heart. He didn't say that. He said, go into all the world and be baptized. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you ever wonder why this mention of the waters of baptism every single Sunday, why we hold this view of baptism in such high regard, it is because of how we read New Testament Scripture. It's not just in one place. As I presented this morning, as I've reminded us this morning, it is mentioned over and over and over again that baptism is part of the salvation process. And so as we begin to conclude our time together, I remind us of baptism. I remind us of what the what opportunity we have today. One last excerpt from uh, from Flannery O'Connor. His voice grew soft and musical. All the rivers come from that one river and go back to it like it was the ocean sea.
And if you believe, you can lay your pain in that river and get rid of it because that's the river that was made to carry sin. It's a river full of pain itself moving toward the kingdom of Christ to be washed away. Those, I think, are beautiful words by the author. But they're no more beautiful words than what we hear from Jesus himself. In John 10, Jesus says that the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. But I come so that you may have life and have it to the full. He says in some translations that you can have it life to the to an abundance. And that is what happens when we yield our lives. We submit our lives to our Heavenly Father once and for all. That we start seeing a life that is more abundant. Yes, even in a broken and fallen world, that we start seeing a life that is more full. And so that's what I invite you to this morning. I invite you to a fullness of life that is not offered outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so once again, I invite you this morning. I invite you to come if you have something weighing on you and you would appreciate the prayers of this church family. I invite you to come this morning if your life has not been what it should be. And you need to and you you need to be restored to God's kingdom. In the same way that once upon a time one of those apostles Peter himself was restored by Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you are not yet a child of God, then we do offer you the waters of baptism based on your belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, based on your confession that you believe just that. We make baptism available to you to begin your new life as a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father with full adoption into His family and that you begin walking in this new spiritual journey. Let's stand and let's sing this song.